Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me alongside producers Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett. Sam is a soccer journalist and Syria A expert, and Grail can barely read or write. No, just kidding. Grail is actually a well-versed media executive. Um, so, guys, today uh, on OTB, we check in with uh, one of our regulars here on the show, Grant Wall. He's the host of the new, or, or not so new, as he's already had a few of them under his belt, the podcast Football with Grant Wall. Uh, yes, there are other podcasts besides ours out there, folks. I know it's hard to hear, but it's true. I always like talking to Grant, guys. He has uh, been a strong voice and an advocate for the game here uh, in this country, and he's covered the game both foreign and domestically. Um, what's that? Foreign and domestic sounds like he's protecting the Constitution uh, for Fox News and uh, until recently. So it's always great to talk to him. Uh, all right, guys, before we talk uh, to Grant and talk about all this stuff that's going on in the uh, world of footy, uh, what are you over today on Over the Ball, Sam? Uh, yeah, I'm over this new sort of setup we have with CBS Sports and the Champions League. I don't know if you guys saw they rolled out their coverage plans for the tournament in yeah. and the Europa League, I guess I should mention. Um, so it, the majority of the games are going to be on their streaming network, which you have to sign up for. It's not included in the basic cable package, which has me annoyed because I've already burned my one-month trial on them a while back. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to be stuck watching these games in Spanish. Stuck's not the right word. I actually really enjoy watching games in Spanish, but, um, I'm just annoyed. I mean, there's no way I'm going to get a new subscription to watch this. I'm also, the talent seems very talented, but there's not one American on the panel, which doesn't really bother me the way I know it bothers you guys sometimes. I mean, when we're talking about the Champions League, if it's mostly Europeans, that's okay with me, but what I, I just don't understand the point of it. Why not just pump in what's on TV in England? I mean, it's essentially just like the same thing. Um, so anyway, I yeah. I mean, you want to put your mark on it as a network. I mean, Grail, that's really your your sort yeah. of wheelhouse. I mean, uh, well, th- this I, I get what you're saying, Sam. I would only respond with this: they're paying a boatload of money for Champions League, and in fact, they ponied up more money to get it earlier because Turner bailed on their contract. Uh, I, you know, the fact that they have Roberto Martinez is to me, if I was going to build a soccer broadcast and wanted to pick one person, it'd be him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a big, I've never been a huge Kate Abdo fan, but they probably figure. <laughs> How does she keep getting the gigs? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, she, she, she's not my favorite. But, you know, honestly, if, you, if you've if you got. Fox, Fox, TNT, then now CBS. It's like, it's like, it's like buying milk. It goes bad. And then you put it in the refrigerator for another couple of weeks and you come back and taste it again. See, oh, maybe it's gotten better. I, I but but I think, but I honestly, you know, I think having Roberto Martinez and uh, Jamie Carragher uh, in the studio doing, um, commentary, you know, analysis will be great. And, uh, you know, and they've got Rude Gullet and they've got uh, Peter Schmeichel. So again, you know, I know I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of not trying things as you go along because we learned from the Gus Johnson experiment on Fox that that was a disaster. Mm-hmm. So again, I get the fact that we want more Americans, but, a, but I would rather have a proven commodity doing it intelligently than try, mm-hmm. than listening to somebody who's trying to figure it out as they go along. Yeah. yeah they don't so, want to, yeah, but fin- financially speaking, you said they've invested a lot of money. So why then not hire anybody and save money there? And do, I mean, do you really think like having their own studio set up is going to, draw a significant amount of people to watch the games well remember sam they've got they've got a they've got a three-year commitment 
after the culmination of this one and a half that they're picking up on the fly. So they got like four and a half years of doing it and they're trying to build something. They've never had soccer at CBS. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, they're just investing dollars in proven commodities, which will, you know, which will put a better product out there immediately. Again, I just think, you know, trial and error at this point with the investment is very difficult to do. So, yeah, you know, and I, I see, I, I wish they would at least dovetail in some American talent, not like, you know, this seems to be a reaction to how badly TNT did with basically we were watching like the cover of teen magazine every week with the shoes and hair and um, you know, sort of young demographic repartee that the the american guys had there yeah. you know i think you throw one in maybe uh to, to just into the mix i mean look how well martino's done you know i think it'll be i think it's gonna kate abdo is gonna be very different on this broadcast too because she's sitting next to roberto martinez she's not going to be the too cool for school hostess that she was on turner it's right, going to be right. a very different vibe and i think it's going to be more professional and for me that's a good thing again I, we always say let's draft Bob Lee, pull him out of retirement and uh, sit down. Yeah, but you I, know, Bob, Bob Lee's a huge fan of Roberto Martinez because yeah. they did the World Cup together and they did the Euros together. Euros together, and right. Roberto is the, is the best analyst out there. I just I just feel like this is, wow, uh, this is a, a reaction to what TNT did, an overreaction, I believe. Uh, all right, Grail, what are you over? So I'm over debating who the best player is in the EPL because I think, hands down, <laughs> it's Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, he, he ended up this season with 13 goals and 20 assists. He, he tied the assist record in the EPL with uh, Thierry Henry, the great uh, French oh, forward from Arsenal. And, uh, you know, again, I'm biased because he is so my type of player, but he is an amazing facilitator. He makes mm -hmm. everybody around him better. He he has, you know, basically contributed to a, a huge percentage of their goals over the year. And he's just, you know, he's a pass first player. That's the thing that I've always told kids when I've coached is this is a passing game. It's not a dribbling game. And when you watch, when you watch De Bruyne play, the first thing he's looking for is the next pass. It doesn't have to be a 40 yard pass. Sometimes it's a 10 yard pass, but it's about moving it up the pitch. And I just, Again, if I was going to build a team uh, in the Premier League right now and I had one player to pick, I'd go with Kevin De Bruyne. You know, I, I would agree with that. Almost, It's almost like you're a midfielder talking in a way where you know, you've got a box-to-box -box player there. Yeah. I, but I do agree with you. But it's also classically that player, that type of player that's running box-to-box -box is undervalued sometimes. Um, you know, look at Bobby Firmino. I watch the stuff he does off the ball. He's a first-pass guy. The things that he creates for those guys, the touches that he makes. He makes so it go I, for them up front, Flinny. He, he, Firmino is the yeah. guy on Liverpool, no doubt. Absolutely. So I think in the same vein, uh, that's what we're talking about. And I think uh, I think you're right. But, you know, this, the striker always gets the, uh, gets the, the headlines. Um, so yeah. uh, I think uh, I agree with you. I agree. That. Mine is uh, basically – you know, here it is, the European League started up. They had some bumps in the road, but they did it. And they had some really exciting games, some exciting matches. We were back watching television, watching soccer again on TV. MLS rolled out here. They had a little bit of a rough start. They figured out. They jumped on their grenades, and they made it happen. They're making it happen. And you would think that, it, that no sports all around the world, including in America, ever happened because America's in their own quarantine bubble pretty much 24-7, even before the – before the COVID outbreak, 
it's like they didn't even cover it to say, hey, European leagues are doing pretty well. How are they doing it? Let's check it out. Wonder, you know. Um, it's just, again, I think like soccer does not get any credit. And you, you try to say, is it, is it the horse before the cart? Do you, you know, do you cover the game and then people follow it or do you follow it and then people cover it? I don't know. So it's just, yeah. I mean, it was just as if sports only started when it restarted in America, like it, like it was just yeah. insignificant elsewhere. And, and you would have thought that the executives of the sports franchises here and certainly the commissioners, and maybe they did, you know, Adam Silver's a smart guy. Maybe they talked to people in the Bundesliga, you know, or in Syria and said, hey, what worked for you guys? What didn't work for you guys? I mean, unfortunately, we can't get it right in this country in terms of actually dealing with COVID. So that's our biggest problem. But I think they could, hopefully they, hopefully they did seek out some advice from the people that were running yeah. the leagues over there because they did it really well. Even the scent of the crowd noises and stuff. Um, I think yeah. MLS is missing that. I watched the game last night. Um, you know, Kansas City. Could you hear the ball rattling around? Well, you know, no. Stands. It was. It's, it's interesting because I could hear Vermees talking on the sidelines yeah. and players yelling at each other. It was kind of nice. Like it felt like a a really high intensity training session, uh, which is always it's just always fun to watch. But uh, yeah. you do miss you miss the crowd noise. So I also miss. Uh, you know, seeing Vermees there, just like it, it gives me U.S. men's national team. I'm jonesing for it. I want to see how they play. And this is, we're going to, this is a, the longest break we've ever had uh, since I've been following that team because of this outbreak. And um, uh, I, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. We mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago, how basically the national team, you know, sort of bleeds out. Certain players kind of bleed out and then others dovetail in. And it's sort of a, um, you know, a flowing situation. Well, we've had a long break now and I think we're going to see a very different national team um and then yeah, also so, the qualifying has changed talk about that yeah so we're going from six to eight teams um it's going to be the uh essentially the top five in the current rankings U.S. Mexico Costa Rica Jamaica Honduras plus three other three others going uh qualifying and then three ultimately going to uh cutter um, but so 14 matches will be played to qualify, but no official matches until next, next March. So there's going to be more lag time in terms of official matches. Um, and then no more than five tune-up matches this year. And they'll end up playing about 20 plus matches next year. So it's going to be like a little bit more like sit around a little bit and then all of a sudden they're, they're going to be coming fast and furious. So you're right, Flinny. I think a lot's going to depend on kind of who's in form like it always is, but I'm just saying in this case, it's yeah. even more so, right? But a, a lot of players are, you know, aging out and a lot of players are on their way up. Um, th this one kid, uh, I think, uh, Sam, you're following this. Chris Richards from Byron, he got called up for the first team. Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so uh, he's a 20-year-old, got called up for the first team. He's played basically the whole season with um, Byron Munich 2 um, in the third league. Uh, he did get his debut on the last – no, not the last day of the season, the day Byron clinched uh, their league title this year. So he does have, you know, a very small amount of experience with the, uh, the full team. And, uh, yeah, he's going to be a part of the team because Benjamin Pavard, the French right back, uh, was injured. 
Um, so interested to see, you know, how many minutes he'll actually get, but cool that he'll be a part of the, uh, the little tournament. Now. He's a right back, huh? Which is a position and a left back could be Sergino Dest. Uh, oh, this is starting to look interesting. And Grail are going to try to play into uh, Burhalter's system, as you call it. Just... Well, you know, you know what? I was encouraged. We talked about this a while ago. I was encouraged that Burhalter was uh, sounding a more practical point of view. I think about what just needs to be done to qualify versus being overly obsessed with the system. I do find it interesting, you know, on the, on the heels of Frank DeBoer getting fired from um, Atlanta United um, Mm -hmm. because his uh, style didn't really work with the, a lot of the Latino players that he had is that, uh, you know, Bert Halter is really pushing a Dutch system. Right. (laughs) Right. Which is kind of ironic that the system that has failed. I mean, not remember the Dutch system as we knew it was total football with Johan Cruyff in the early seventies, which was totally different than the Louis van Hall, Frank de Boer Dutch system, which is very defensive minded. Right. And that's where he uh, ran into problems too. Yeah. yeah. It's like kind of parking the bus almost. And yeah. And Atlanta is like the antithesis of that team. Like their players are all about going forward. And he was like, ah, we're not going to be doing that anymore. Yeah, plus he lost his big goal scorer, too. So that uh, that yeah. hurts. So, um, but speaking of World Cup, guys, uh, here's a surprise. I hope you're both sitting down. Yeah. FIFA president Gianni Infantino is being investigated in Switzerland. Swiss prosecutors have launched legal proceedings against the FIFA president. <laughs> Talk about this. Who's following this story? Well, Sam, Sam, you just came back from Switzerland. So how did how how did that how did your your reporting go? We've got a huge budget here at uh, OTV, so I know that you were over in Switzerland <laughs> investigating this. No, yeah. he was checking out hot chocolate and the Swiss <laughs> Army knife. That was what he was. <laughs> Uh, I did live for a summer in Switzerland, actually, in Geneva, although Gorgeous. that was about, you know, 15 years ago. But um, anyway, well, what I make of this is that apparently there was a an alleged secret meeting between Johnny Infantino and uh, a Swiss attorney named, Swiss attorney general named Michael Lauber. Um, Lauber also resigned um, last week after a court said he covered up the meeting um, and lied to supervisors during an investigation um, by his office. So he was supposed to be investigating corruption surrounding FIFA and then apparently had this secret meeting with the <gasps> They're Although all on the both take. Have, both have denied wrongdoing. Uh, yeah, I deny any wrongdoing and I resign. Yeah. <laughs> but the I'll very, resign. Very interesting. Uh, so, uh, well, you know, look, soccer always intersects <laughs> sort of legal proceedings and uh, it seemed to drag on forever until uh, the U.S. got involved. So, um, Well, the fact that it's proceeding, Sam, is must be concerning for Infantino because we first talked about this a few weeks ago and he probably thought it was just going to go away. Because back then it had something to do with taking a private plane back right. from a meeting and it's, they were questioning the to... finances. But, you know, yeah. there, there, could be, there could be a dozen things that are a problem with Infantino. Who knows? Yeah. It's hard to keep track of it all. Yeah, you know, you would think uh, they're trying to maybe play by the old rules where they got away with absolutely everything. And and especially now, they have to realize that they're under scrutiny, you know? Everybody's looking for them to fall. And you would think that a guy would go in there and go like, hey, man, I got to keep myself clean here for a couple years. Then I'll I'll start to accept kickbacks after the next World Cup or something. I don't know, but like to to do it right out of the gate here seems rather power. Foolish. Power is an intoxicating thing, Flinny. We we know that in terms of uh, who's running our 
and and, and money and money or lack thereof. Exactly. This, exactly. This podcast case. Um, also, uh, you know, legal proceedings, Champions League, Man City. They they gave some clarification, Sam, as to why they made the decision. Yeah, a little bit. So we have, um, yeah, just a, a few words from the CAS, um, you know, decision on overturning Man City's two-year Champions League ban. And, you know, now the CAS, the CAS is a panel of, of European lawyers, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. Court of Arbitration for Sport. And um, yeah, so essentially they acknowledge that these payments did happen, that, you know, the Man City owners were sort of funneling in money that they shouldn't have been into the team. Um, however, because uh, these payments were made more than five years before the charges were brought, uh, they were time-barred. So, you know, the statute of limitations had... Um, you know, expired. Uh, the uh, the lawyers only decided by a majority of two to one. So there are only three uh, guys on the board, and yeah. apparently one of those was you know suggested by Manchester City uh, to begin with. So I don't know. There's a uh, you know the more you hear about this, the the more murky it becomes in my opinion. Yeah, and I think one of the things they did, uh, Sam, was to funnel some of the money into under sponsorships because the yeah that's that's yeah. what I'm that's yeah 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 so yeah so the big the. I, I guess the uh, the rules really are looking to prohibit companies that have, have unlimited money from just sinking it into the team at, you know, at any level you want. Yeah. Right. But they were able to do that kind of through their deal with uh, Etihad. Right. They were able um, to kind of. Yeah. yeah but it then, is yeah. just, just different yeah, accounting yeah. column, but it, they're still throwing money in there. No, so, well, yeah. of, well, of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's wrong. It was actually, the company is actually called Eti Salat. It's a telecoms company, but I mean, yeah. all these fall under the same umbrella. And you exactly. know, I mean, these, a lot of these, these countries do this to basically burnish their image. Uh, when, you know, sort of when you, uh, you know, the Khashoggi thing where they, they chopped a man into pieces um, and they, they figure if they can get themselves on the front of a shirt that they can undo a lot of the damage. Um, so Newcastle, I guess, is not going to be bought by the Saudis. Talk about that a little bit, Sam. That, that fell uh, yeah, that fell through. Um, Grail, you probably know more about this. Than yeah, I, I it was. Like, uh, yeah, you go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying I, I, I think we all felt that it was kind of moving in that direction, Sam, because it was mm -hmm. taking a long time. And uh, between human rights complaints and then the whole being sports pirating of their signal deal it just became something that i think the premier league well i think saudi arabia saw the writing on the wall yeah. and, well, and, they, and they were getting they were getting negative press and something well, that it, to honestly yeah and honestly for the epl i think it's just as well i mean i feel sorry for newcastle fans that they didn't yeah. get a really wealthy owner but you don't want to get a wealthy owner who's engaged in criminal activities. Right. Mm -hmm. And they and they were. So I think it's actually, I think somebody else will come along. I think, Sam, there might be an American company that's interested. Yeah, there was a guy that had made a sort of a fallback kind of bid. Yeah. Um, but I haven't been hearing anything about him lately. But, you know, I did think it was interesting that, you know, they sort of managed to get out of the deal, um, uh, the Saudis, without really, you know, they were able to say they were just, you know, upset with the lack of progress, didn't seem like things were going to go. So everyone, no one had to really admit too much here. Oh, yes. It's called saving face is what yeah, happened. Yes. So, but for anyone who was disappointed that that didn't go through, um, the Kingdom of Bahrain uh, has invested in um, Paris FC, which is the, the second team of Paris, apparently. Uh, they're in the second division. Um, yeah, they bought a minority stake in the club with the very blatant um, purpose of hoping the team will act as a billboard, uh, attract tourists to the country, um, that apparently is still reeling sort of reputational damage, like you're saying, Kevin, when they 
you know, came down really hard on pro-democracy uprisings during the, the Arab Spring. So, yeah, isn't, right. isn't, isn't the, I think the jersey is going to say something like travel Bahrain or something. It's going to have a it's going to have a, a slogan basically uh, pushing their tourism board. Um, which again, it, it, anybody can do that. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. And, and look with promotion relegation, you have a division two team and you get the money thrown at you. You're, you're, you're moving up, man. That's the way it works. And those middle Eastern countries are, you know, I mean, they're competing with each other, right. For, yeah. for all sorts of different things, business investment. Uh, and it's, and it's a nice, I think it's a kind of a, a nice little thing to have, right. To be able to say, Oh yeah, I own a, I own a soccer club. I am an international soccer player. I I can't wait till I can say that. So uh, the EPL finale Sunday, uh, your your Chelsea boys did pretty well. Oh, my God. Guys, you know, my head was spinning. I've got to tell you, that's like that's the the, one of the great days on the soccer calendar. Uh, Yeah. Chelsea defeated Wolves 2-0. They ended up in uh, fourth place on goal differential because Man United, meantime, was – defeating Leicester 2-0. So they yeah. ended up in third. Um, Leicester just stumbled mightily in the in, after Project Restart, and they missed the top four. So they ended up in five. So they're – You think Brendan Rodgers' head is on the on – No, the- no, no. I think he's fine. Uh, you know, Vardy ended up winning the golden boot, which yep. was nice. 23 goals, the first Leicester player since Gary Lineker uh, did that in 84, 85. So it was a good season for Leicester. It was just they came out of the gate roaring, and then they just kind of – Petered out, um, and then and speaking Villa, of petered out, Pulisic uh, had a rare poor performance. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah, been on fire of late, but I yeah. mean, I, you know, I'm, uh, I don't think I'm being overly critical. It was one of those. We've all had these matches. From his first touch, you could just tell he was off. You know, just a clunky first touch hit his shin, and it just proceeded in that direction. Fortunately, it didn't matter because you know Giroud scored and they played well, but. Uh, yeah, so they, you know, so they've secured that, and they've got, they've got some. Uh, I mean, the interesting th- thing too is they benched uh, Kepa, their keeper for Caballero, and it and it seems imminent that Kepa will be traded. They'll 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 get rid of him because uh, yeah. they need a better goalie. Um, so then, and then just on the relegation front, Villa earned a one-all draw with West Ham, uh, so they stayed up. Um, amazingly, they were seven points away only from safety two weeks wow. ago and they went That's on a amazing. nice run Bournemouth, you know, this is, this is, this is the cruelty of relegation. Bournemouth beat Everton three, one, but still went down yep. um, because it was just too little too late. And now mm-hmm. the big question with them is does Eddie Howe, who's a very respected manager of theirs end up staying or does he end up going to another club? Cause he would be very much, he was actually talked about for the, um, no, for the Man team, United job. Oh, and then Jack Grealish at Aston Villa, if they're going to be able to yeah, keep him. Yeah, well, they saved Grealish. And then the Watford thing was just so sad because they had fired their coach two matches ago, Nigel Pearson, because Gino Puzzo, who we've talked about before, Sam, who you're well aware of, the Italian mm-hmm. mogul who's got the patience of a gnat, uh, just went through coaches like, uh, you know, garbage bags this year. And again, what it got him was relegation ultimately. So yeah, Watford I mean, you tried to they, they they classically they try to give you a little boost by a big firing, you know, right at the end. It's so well. He it. also was, you know, he's one of these guys who just you know is questioning roster moves and substitutions and all sorts of things. So right. he was, and, and then and then just uh, you know, in terms of the top guys, Man City 
you know, ended up the season with, with a five nil route of Norwich and it was uh, David Silva's last EPL match. Uh, what a player, man. What a player. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting. And of course, Pep is biased, but Pep said that in his mind, uh, Silva and Iniesta are the, the best um, technical midfielders. Yeah, they're similar players, obviously. Yeah, yeah that, that he's ever coached. Again, he didn't say midfielders, but he said technical midfielders. Right. And I would have to agree. I mean, I just you, – you look at what he accomplished there. You know, 60 goals, 90 assists, 11 major trophies. David Silva had an amazing career. I what mean, does he do down. now? Is he retiring or is he going go back home? Goals? No, he wants to go back to Spain. He's going to play for another club back in Spain for probably a couple of years. He just wanted to go home. Yeah. And then Ederson yeah. wins the Golden Glove Award. Ederson, yeah, 16 clean sheets. I, you know, again, as a magical a season as Liverpool had this year, I think going into next year, City are the prohibitive favorites, the way they've been playing. Really? Yeah. I, I just think they're going to they're gonna get some new pieces. They're going to reload in the back. And, um, yeah, I, I just think they're going to – I think uh, they're going to be on such a mission. I think they are going to be – incredible next year i just think the bar has been set so high between liverpool and man city their season yeah. that it's like you know you lose a game it's tragic it's like look it's part of the package man and and the gap between them i think and the other clubs frankly is is pretty vast even as much as i love chelsea and you know and man united right. is a good team i just think like you've got liverpool and man city in a different strategy. different category yeah so um sam talk about syria wound yeah. up yeah so we got one more weekend of Serie A coming up this weekend, um, but Juve have already won their now ninth uh, successive Scudetto, despite kind of limping to the finish line. They really didn't play well since the restart. Um, so Sadi, the coach, you know, his future still kind of up in the air, despite the success, um, I would say. Uh, a lot of people have different opinions on that. Um, I do think it's also worth mentioning. I know, Grail, you're not a big Sari fan, but this is a guy who got into coaching uh, at age 40 after quitting oh. a job at a bank that's um, amazing and began as a manager literally at the lowest level of italian soccer um and worked his way all the way up to winning the scudetto and i think he's now the oldest manager to do yeah. that at age 61 um so you know people sorry's uh, become very divisive but um it's it's a pretty awesome story um you know, elsewhere, the fact that they've won nine titles in a row has some people suggesting, including the Napoli president, Aurelio De Laurentiis, that um, they should institute a playoff uh, in Serie A for both relegation and for the title. Um, I think that would be a fantastic idea personally. I think it would be a great idea anyway, but even more so considering Serie A really needs to do something to differentiate itself uh, from the other leagues and not fall further behind. Yeah. Um, let's see. Elsewhere, Chido Immobile now leads Ronaldo 35 to 31 for the scoring race. Um, Immobile can equal or break Iguain's single season record of 36, uh, which he did with Napoli, uh, if he scores one or more this weekend. Um, that said, Immobile scored 14 penalties this year. Um, Iguain only had three in his record setting season. That's a lot um, of goals, though, Sam. Wow. That's, That's a lot of goals. That's a lot of goals. That's yeah. a lot of penalties, too, though. Yeah. Um, Immobile is also now the leader of the gold, the European Golden Shoe standings. He has one more goal than Lewandowski, um, although they play four less games in Germany. So I, I don't think that gets factored in. But, um, they're both both impressive. <laughs> yeah, know. no, it's pretty wild. Uh, so the only thing really left to play for, though, in Serie A is uh, relegation. So Lecce in 18th place are one point behind Genoa in 17th. Um, Genoa plays uh, at home to Verona this weekend, and Lecce are home against um, Parma. Uh, and both these games are highly unpredictable they could go 
any in either way. So, all right. So I, 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 we want to get to Grant Wall. We've got so much to cover here, but uh, I just wanted to mention quickly this uh, Coupe de France, I guess, which is their sort of FA Cup thing. PSG defeats Saint Etienne one zip on a Neymar goal, but Mbappe just carted off a horrific oh tackle. Did you guys see this? Perrine, Perrine, who I, I, I guess has kind of a uh, reputation, reputation for being yeah. a butcher. I mean, I can't even, you have to watch, just go to YouTube and watch this tackle because it is, it is so reckless and so unnecessary and it, and it basically ignited a huge fracas on the, uh, yeah. on the pitch. I mean, it was almost like a riot between the players and they've had three red cards in the three last times they've played. So there's a, there's a history of bad blood there. All right. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it was a red card straight away, but they had to go to VAR. So sometimes VAR works. All yes. right, guys. So uh, we covered a lot of ground here. Uh, we're going to take a break real quick and then get back with our interview with Grant Wall. You're listening to Over the Ball. We'll be back. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And by Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com, and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. Our guest today is considered one of the premier voices in the game here in this country as he covers American soccer domestically and also internationally. He's also the host of the relatively new, still relatively new, uh, podcast, Football with Grant Wall. That's F-U-T-B-O-L. It's going to break a lot of people's spell checks, I think, uh, Grant. Uh, welcome to Over the Ball, Grant. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Hey, so we had some great news uh, yesterday. We heard uh, you're doing a six-part documentary podcast with Blue Wire about Freddie Adu, which I think is an amazingly fascinating story. Tell us a little bit about it. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I wasn't sure that I was going to do it as sort of a written oral history or as a podcast series. But I spoke to Blue Wire probably about three months ago now and uh, pitched the idea, and they were all over it, uh, doing yeah. a podcast series, uh, six episodes, kind of like, you know, a 30 for 30 on the Freddie Adu saga. And, and not just about Freddie Adu, but about our obsession with sports prodigies and young athletic genius. And I've always been fascinated by that whole topic, but also because I did our first LeBron James cover story at Sports Illustrated when he was a 17 year old back in 2002. Uh, yeah. And obviously he made it. And right around the same time, a year later, I wrote my first magazine story on Freddie Adu, who was even younger. He was 13 years old in 2003. And clearly, Freddie Adu, you could say, didn't make it. Now, right. I would argue that he actually did achieve more, a bit more than most people would think, even soccer people, but did not come close to the insane expectations. And when you think about it, when his rookie year in MLS happened in 2004, he did an entire national TV ad campaign with Pele, right. which set expectations for what everyone viewed Freddie do, this 14-year-old at that point, is what he could achieve. And he was the highest paid player on his team, one of the highest paid players in the league. There were all sorts you know, like of 
just the coverage, the, the ABC TV coverage for his first game, that first season. And I ended up talking to nearly two dozen people. You know, these are long interviews, around an hour each, sometimes as many as two hours. All the people, teammates and coaches on that DC United team, people who are close to Freddie, Freddie himself, who has always turned down interview requests to look at the arc of his career. And I kind of get it. Right. But he turned me down too at first and politely because I've, I've known him for a long time, but we did more and more interviews and people close to Freddie eventually convinced him to do the interview. And it was a really revealing interview. Now, Freddie's 31 now. Amazing. And, and so I think there's going to be a really interesting story here for soccer fans, but also sports fans in general and people who want to, to think about this obsession we have with sports prodigies. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I think a book for sure. And I love these podcasts, these documentary podcasts, the one on Aaron Hernandez. And um, so I think it's, it's a great idea. So much to cover. I mean, even just what you just said opening here um, with Freddie Adu. First of all, my exp I have met him and have talked to him. I really liked him. He's a very nice young man, or not anymore. <laughs> He's in his 30s now. From his, uh, you know, his mother, he, you know, he was a good guy. And I think sometimes people put out this, like he made this sort of Faustian bargain, and uh, it was just really thrust on him. And for the most part, Grant, and you'll know this from your experience at soccer uh, at uh, Sports Illustrated, most of the time, times these prodigies don't really work out. Uh, LeBron seems to be the exception, and in a huge way, but. I think Freddie had the weight of an entire soccer nation on his shoulders for a year or two there. So um, I'm glad you were able to talk to him. The biggest thing people always say to me was, was he really 14? Have, you remember that rumor? Oh, yeah. um, any, any truth to that? Or what was that about? Because I, I saw this kid, I saw him in the under 20s in Toronto play. Dude was magic at times, absolute magic on the ball. And then he would go into a funk and you wouldn't see him for a while. But man, he, he had some game. Well, even the first big magazine story I did on Freddie back in 2003, we hired somebody in Ghana to independently go and get his birth certificate. And what the birth certificate said was the date that he said he was born on. Um, now, that said, in Ghana, uh, the way they keep records, a lot of times those birth certificates don't get filed until a few years after the birth. But that that said, uh, they couldn't have known when it was filed that he would become this sports right. star who, mm -hmm. it, it is a legit question to ask because yes, there is a, a record of a fair number of, of African players who have falsified their ages, whether it's soccer or basketball, not everyone obviously. Uh, and because there's a lot more interest from sports teams, from endorse, endorsement companies in the potential of youth, it, there is an incentive to say you're younger than you are. But I never found evidence that Freddie was older than he said he was. That doesn't say that that answers the whole question, I guess. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't believe it, it really. I think, I think he was the age that he said he was. But I just, you know, one of the things that connect that thought is the, the fact that I know with the full national team, 
the amount of players who make it from the under 20 to the full national team is very rare. It's very small. Um, and so a lot of times you do, you know, bet on certain players, they get the best coaching, they travel the world, and yet they still don't make it to the next level. It's some other kid who's a little hungrier, maybe going through the college of it or whatever. So I think if you play the odds, the odds are that a prodigy like that doesn't pan out and it's got nothing to do with age. It is interesting though. You mentioned that under 20 world cup in Canada in 2007, where Freddie had a hat trick against Poland. Uh, he was part of the U S team that beat Brazil, a Brazil team with Marcelo in it and Alexander Pato. They beat an Uruguay team that had Luis Suarez and Edinson Cavani. Yeah. <laughs> So, and this was a U.S. team that had Freddie Adu, Michael Bradley, Josie Altidore. And it, it was part of this weird pattern with Freddie Adu in particular. He was the captain of that team where he would have these moments with youth national teams, really good moments, good tournaments. But then at club level, he couldn't repeat it, couldn't be consistent with it. And and that became a, a big driving question for me of why, why was this the case? Right. Uh, and, it, and that has been interesting. And, and yes, we also asked everyone we interviewed, do you, do you think Freddie was the age he, he said he was? He said he was. Well, you know, also you look at, uh, you play amateur college, people are just playing to play. You start to go to the pros, you know, I've been a part of this where certain guys make more money and they're always hurt or they're, they're not contributing as much. They're not giving as much of an effort. So things start to happen on a professional level. You start to look at the kid who's making the most amount of money and he's not doing it on the field. Suddenly guys on your own team start to be resentful of you. And for such a nice kid who had so much pressure on him, it's a, it's a really difficult position to be in. Yeah, it is. And, and it was really interesting for me to talk to some of Freddie's teammates from DC United. And remember, they won the title his rookie season. Yeah. But it was interesting to get some sort of like, now it can be told stories from inside that team and what it was really like and the pressures that you're talking about and how that interaction worked. And there's like, there, there were a lot of big personalities on that 2004 DC United team. We're talking about Ernie Stewart. Ben Olson, Mike Petke, Jaime Moreno, wow. uh, you know, guys who have had big careers, uh, you know, club and country, and, and certainly had thoughts to share about that whole process because that year was a circus. Like when they would go on the road, the amount of attention that Freddie Adu got, they were on national television all the time. MLS was in a totally different place. They had only 10 teams and they were putting – so much on the shoulders of a 14 year old. And, and, and oh I've spoken to, to guys who were former MLS officials, like who, you know, have some regrets about some of the things they did. Right. Grail? Yeah, Grant, congrats on the series. Um, I was just curious in your conversations with either Freddie or some of the other people you, inter you interviewed, if uh, the issue of race came up. And the fact that, uh, you know, that, that was certainly a time, and it still is, where you don't have a lot of African-Americans playing and how much, uh, how much weight, additional weight, that put on Freddie. It is a topic that we address in, in detail. And it's interesting for me because I didn't think about that aspect of it in real time in 2004 uh, when Freddie was breaking through. But... Uh, 
especially with, I spoke to a couple people, uh, Clint Smith is a writer for The Atlantic, book author, former uh, D1 soccer player, Davidson. And he's the exact same age as Freddie. And he wrote a story for The New Yorker a couple years ago about the significance of Freddie Adu to Black Americans. And maybe I hadn't thought about it as much. And actually, Freddie said he hadn't thought about it as much because, well, here's a kid who was born in Africa, not in the US. Yes, he's a naturalized American. But clearly, to hear Clint Smith talk about this, and uh, I also spoke to Jeremy Bobasi uh, about it because he was from that area, he's forward now with the Timbers. Um, they said that it was important for them to see a black superstar in soccer. And in the US at least, obviously there had been black players on the national team, Kobe Jones, Eddie Pope, but not a superstar right. who was American and black. And, and in a commercial with Pele, you know, right, right. Yeah, like, and, like and that was so, enough pressure. And you know, Clint Smith was saying that his family in those days would watch golf because they were rooting for Tiger Woods and they'd watch tennis because they were rooting for the Williams sisters. And he looked at Freddie in a sort of similar way. Sam? Um, yeah, Grant, I have more of a craft question, I guess, which is how, how did this project differ from an article or a series of articles that you've put together or writing a book? Um, yeah, just from the kind of technical aspect. I mean, I would compare it to a gigantic magazine story. Mm -hmm. So not, you know, this is like a, gonna end up being probably a, a three month project in the end. And it's, it's a lot like a really high level magazine story in the sense that you're wanting to do really in-depth interviews with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure you get good audio quality, which is a little harder, but not impossible. And during a pandemic, it's a little tougher because if the pandemic hadn't been happening, we would have literally hired tape sync people in each city to go on site and, and record the interviews to get the best audio possible. But thanks to technology, we've been able to send out microphones to all the interviewees and, and get good quality audio. Um, and then once you have all the interviews done, you start writing the script. And for me, it's, it's great because I, I'm a writer originally. And so to be able to dig into writing a script like this for six episodes has just exercised my writing muscles again in a way that I only do when I write books and, and significant magazine stories. Hmm. So it's a little different though, because then um, the words are a little, it's not quite what you would write in a, in a written magazine story because it, it's like a, it's spoken, right? right? So that's a little different. And then just the, the reading of the script, like the, like it's, I, I find it interesting as someone who's done, I've recorded a book on tape for my last book. Uh, I've done video essays for Fox Sports Television. And when you're doing an episodic podcast series, they actually want you to use a, your voice differently. Maybe this is a little too inside baseball, but they actually want you to, to read the script without sounding like you're reading, reading a, a script. script. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
and not that, put, it's, it's acting it's acting basically and not put a ton yeah, of yeah. emphasis on particular words in a way like when i would do a, a video essay on television i was told like you need to punch things yeah and, yeah. and so th literally that part is is a challenge but it's hmm. it's something i can do it's, it's just interesting so you're going from back to your writer's roots uh, as opposed to your pretty boy on-air talent uh, <laughs> job that you're doing at Fox. Um, talk to us a little bit. Let's, let's bring it back domestically in the U.S. men's national team and uh, octagonal qualifying format. What do you think of this new um, setup for 2022? I mean, I Is it good, good for the U.S.? Or? I, I think so. I, like, I like this setup, this format, better than some of the alternatives we had seen, because we had seen the possibility of a four-team group with just six games, but you have to win the group. And there's less margin for error if you're the US in that format, where you could have a bad bounce or a bad call, and suddenly you're really in trouble to qualify. Whereas if you now have a 14-game tournament, against seven other teams in that scenario typically because this didn't yeah, the US, I, know you, I know what you're gonna say yeah i know what you're <laughs> typically the best teams will prove it over 14 games that's why south american qualifying is what it is that's a like 18 game tournament this is a 14 game tournament and um I like the fact that the U.S. is going to have two games against Mexico because I, I would have been really bummed out if World Cup qualifiers against Mexico had gone away. And I think they would have in like three groups of four. Yeah. And will, will there be fans in the stands for those qualifiers? I mean, if they want to start later this season, I think it's going to be difficult, um, especially given how poorly we've done with the virus here in the United States. Oh. Uh, and in Mexico, that for that matter, um, you know, I don't know as much about the Caribbean countries. In Mexico, Mexico's getting blamed for a lot of what's happening here, but in some spheres, uh, your wife, obviously a doctor, an infectious disease specialist. Um, I guess that's, we, that's nonsense. The, it's Mexico nonsense, hasn't right? Had yeah. An impact on, on the U.S. Um, right, right. But um, I, I look at it right now, where we are, and like I think MLS is crazy if they think they're going to be able to have fans in stands anytime soon. And, and the virus is only going to get worse as the fall and winter come. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we're, like, we're, I just hope the games happen. Yeah, we, I mean, and we've enjoyed them overseas, you know, the, the EPL and Syria, all that. So, uh, you know, it seems like we're just letting everybody dangle in the wind here by not making a decision when we sort of know what the conclusion should be, which is, either have to cancel or have seasons with no fans and even that's difficult with no fans so uh grail you had something yeah so grant related to that um i'm just curious your overall grade that you would give as mls is winding down and obviously the other global leagues have wound down um just your reflections on the ability to get through it and um anything else i mean you look at the the major european leagues and they've all done a good job you know, we didn't yeah. have any outbreaks like we've seen with the Marlins in baseball, uh, with European soccer leagues. Um, you know, it's funny because this week I had people ask, well, you know, the European soccer leagues weren't in a bubble and they did fine. But the difference is Europe did better in general against the coronavirus, a lot better than we have here in the U.S. Um, I was a little pleasantly surprised about the U.K., England 
uh, doing as well as it did because they haven't done very well with the coronavirus, but the soccer part came off pretty well. Um, MLS, um, they haven't had any transmission of the virus inside the bubble. Now, they did have situations with Dallas and Nashville, which couldn't play in the tournament because they arrived with cases, and that's on them for what they did before they got there. Right. But the bubble worked. Now, the one big issue, and my wife would say this too, she has publicly with the MLS bubble in Florida and the NBA bubble in Florida is they're getting testing responses immediately. And everyone around them in Florida, ordinary citizens, are having to wait crazy long times, right. 10 to 14 days to get tests back. And I sort of, as does my wife, have a, a, a moral issue with that, that just because you're a professional athlete, you shouldn't get better treatment. And I wish, like, what, what we're seeing the NBA do a little bit is actually fund testing for people in the, the Orlando area. Um, so I think that's an issue, but in terms of have they pulled off the bubble well? Yes, they have. Clearly, baseball has made a poor decision not to play in a bubble, which they could have done. Um, and now I'm just curious to see what MLS does. Are they going to, you know, and let's say NWSL didn't have any transmission inside their bubble either. Right. So does MLS do bubble two? Does, does the Players Association agree to that? Is that something that they pursue? I don't know. And I think that's something we're going to have to well, find out about. I'd say MLS would have a better chance with the players union and the other player unions are pretty strong and pretty adamant about what they want. They have a lot more power. Uh, you know, part of my rant in the beginning of the show is about how soccer has been given no credit. I mean, here we did, we pulled it off in Europe. We watched some really exciting matches. And then here, MLS had a little bit of a staggering start, but they, they, they did it. And now you see how difficult it is because I don't know what the NFL is going to do. Uh, that, that is like players are starting to drop out, you, you know. So, and MLB's had their struggles, and the NBA has had some struggles as well. So I think, once again, soccer doesn't get any credit, you know. It's like it's just not, not happening. So, uh, Sam, do you have something? Um, yeah, Grant, looking ahead to the Champions League, I'm wondering how, how you see the teams going into it and what you make of the new you know, broadcast deal we have here with CBS Sports kind of rolling out its, its plan for coverage. You know, I think Bayern Munich in many ways is the favorite along with Manchester City now. They still have to get past the round of 16 situations, um, which I think they will do, but they haven't done it yet. Um, and... I wonder, just from a volatility standpoint, like is Barcelona, like they could win the thing or they could just have a mega blow up, which would extend some of the stuff Lionel Messi was saying at the end of the season when they didn't win the league. Uh, so there's, there's good storylines here. I, I see a team like Atalanta being a team that I love watching mm -hmm. and they're so explosive and they've got PSG without Mbappe now. Yeah, the bad and, injury, huh? And like that, a, a, yeah. Bad tackle, yeah. Yeah, and, and so can Atalanta win the Champions League in a, in a single game elimination format? Yeah, and that would be one of the greatest stories we've ever seen. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff with that. And, like, yes, I'm bummed out that Timo Werner's not going to be playing for Leipzig. I think they went from a team that could have surprised teams to – I'm not 
having high expectations other than seeing Tyler Adams play in Champions League, which would be nice. Um, but from a broadcast perspective, we just found out CBS Sports is going to have it. They are putting um, every game from all the quarterfinals and semifinals are going to be only on their pay streaming service, which has soccer fans upset. Then again, mm-hmm. you can get a free, uh, free month trial on that. So, and also too, there's Univision, which has the same games in Spanish on free-to-air television. So people are going to be a, people are going to be able to see these games, and and mm-hmm. I, I do understand why fans are annoyed with having to keep paying more, especially for English language soccer broadcasts in America. I, I cut the cord over a year ago, thinking I was going to save money. And I love getting rid of cable, but I think it's kind of all evened out now and it is what it is. Um, But I want to see the sport grow in America. I think we're still not a mature soccer market. I want to see more fans get created. Right. And the way you do that is by making the games available as easily as possible to the most number of people. I, I can remember watching the 1990 World Cup. And that was the first World Cup that I watched in my life and and I what I do today I think is connected to watching that 1990 World Cup and I watched all of it in Spanish because it was on Univision free to air and I my family couldn't afford cable at that time so we couldn't get the English language TNT broadcasts and so yeah I think maybe I'm a little representative of what I think could happen here, but then I see Univision still putting it out there free to air. It's the highest level of soccer out there, and I'm glad they're doing it. it you know, it's interesting with CBS, it's, uh, they're putting their foot in the water with soccer coverage. You'd think they'd want as many people watching as possible, but as the media, it, as it changes the landscape here, um, they want people on their streaming services. So I watched the Liverpool game on Peacock. You know, I signed up for that for a month. So, you know, when that runs out, you know, what do we do then? So it's a, it's a gamble they're taking, um, but probably it, they're looking, you know, at the long run here. So Grail. Yeah. Grant, what do you think the uh, lasting impact is going to be of the uh, players embrace of over in Europe of the black lives matter movement and do you think we finally are starting to make strides in addressing racism in soccer uh let me know when they start allowing fans in italian games again okay Uh, (laughs) and other countries um but it is striking right that in this same season this season has lasted for basically a year now we saw some of the most shocking examples of overt racism in the stands of European soccer games in a bunch of countries. Mm -hmm. And so, and and not nearly enough punishment for that from the authorities in most cases. I've always been like, you need to go scorched earth. You need to take away points from teams whose fans do that. Um, You need to really hit, hit them where it hurts. And they haven't. And so, yes, I, I certainly hope that what we've seen in terms of support for Black Lives Matter, and especially from white players in Europe, that's good. We needed that. We never had that much before. And Lillian Turam, who's made his 
post-playing career racism in, in football, like what he does, always said, the change is going to come from white people and white players need to be just as vocal as black players about this. Yeah, I mean, just because the black player is the one who's singled out for the, for the racist chance or whatever, you know, your teammates, it's, it's not right. You're all together. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I, I love it. You know, and I also say with, with America here, uh, you know, the George Floyd the tragedy happens and it inspires parts of the rest of the world, which I think is, you know, here we get full of ourselves in America. We do live in a bubble, but the rest of the world is not in a bubble. They, they do take a lot of the lead from what, what happens here. So, uh, and I find it very, very encouraging. I, I think, of course, they were the first team to start to go back where they could take a knee, take a moment. Um, you know, so it's, uh, I'm a little encouraged, but I think you're right, Grant. Let's see what happens when some of these things, uh, these leagues open up again in Syria. Ah, if you don't punish the fans, then it'll just keep happening because there's no way to sort of uh, police it. So, uh, yeah, one, 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 yeah, just one of my beefs, Grant, has been that the, the high profile coaches haven't been more vocal. I, I feel like there's been a real opportunity for them to almost band together and just say it's unacceptable. It seems to be stuck somewhat at the player level and the coaches will say the right thing, but it's not, to me, it just could be more forceful. The Klops and Lampards and Mourinho's and people like that have such a voice and it, it, they just haven't wanted to go that extra step. I mean, it, it is interesting. I, I mean, I, I, interview Klopp about this on my podcast. Uh, we did talk about it a little bit. Um, I think he's, he's pretty good on these topics um, yeah. of, of social change and, and what he'd like to see happen. Uh, I did see Guardiola say something that I thought was, was fairly meaningful on, on Black Lives Matter. And, and obviously Guardiola's had issues uh, with Yaya Ture in the past, mm -hmm. in particular on, on, basically accusations of racism mm -hmm. um and i mean i guess what i would say is i hear what you're saying grail but like like what what are they not doing that you would like to see them do well i i, I guess i would just like to see um more of a unified initiative on their part almost like a not a coach's council or something but get five or the six the peps and the clops just to band together and almost just come out and just as a group, yeah, refute it in very strong terms. I mean, for Mourinho, it always just seems like it's a, it's in, in an inconvenience when it happens in a match. Like it stopped the play, and he just doesn't even want to really deal with it. Um, but yeah, just in general, I just again, I think they have an incredible uh, opportunity, and they're listened to by a lot of people. Yeah, I think you got a point there, and we don't often see coordinated organized action from the, the very top managers in world soccer like so, every once in a while they'll have those uefa meetings where like you'll see a bunch of coaches together yeah uh or fifa has them occasionally and then there's the lma organization like in in england which you know represents the managers um but yeah they could do more you know guys it's interesting because you have some uh, coaches here domestically. Um, you, you coach a basketball team and you're not pro Black Lives Matter. 
what are the players going to say or do? Are they going to play for you? So you have like Steve Kerr and Popovich. They've been very outspoken. Um, this is a problem that's going to happen in Europe if these coaches don't step up like you're talking about, Grail. And even talking domestically here, uh, I'm, I'm reading a lot about sort of black uh, players going to a college. How do you pick a college? Let me look at this coach's politics. Is he, you know, behind the Black Lives Matter? Is some of these Southern uh, colleges, do they have a, does he have a bad past? Why would a kid go there, man? He wouldn't go there and play for a coach that might be racist or might be silent when it comes to racism. So I think this is a growing movement. And, you know, you look at the NBA, everybody took a knee last night. Everybody went through the Black Lives Matter. And I, I mentioned it in the opening, these fans who are saying, well, I'm not going to watch NFL football if somebody takes a knee. Well, you know what? You're not going to be able to watch any sports across the, the banner because he's, you know, because this is, this is a growing movement. And so it's going to be like smoking. I'm not going to go to that bar anymore. I'm not going to go to that restaurant. Well, guess what? You have no choice anymore because it's the right thing to do. It's the, the, uh, the, the arc of history, as, uh, as uh, uh, Martin Luther King said. It, uh, what is it? Curves something? I said like George Bush now. I don't know my... Yeah, bends, bends toward justice. Yeah. Bends towards justice. And so maybe it takes too long in many of our eyes, but uh, it's moving there. Hey, we got to go, Grant, but I uh, always love talking to you. But quickly, uh, the FA Cup. You know, when you and I were growing up, man, that was a huge, huge game. That was the biggest game of the year, it seemed, between World Cups. Um, what do you think? And, and you think they can sort of rectify that reputation? Or is Champions League just sort of taking all the air out of the ball? I mean... I'm looking forward to the FA Cup final. Uh, I, I'm looking it's forward a good to one, yeah. Christian Pulisic be involved. I think he's like the third American ever to, to play in the final. And I think he Harksy could. and who else? Who else? Uh, Tim Howard back in uh, 2009 with Everton. Um, yeah. But uh, I think he could be the decisive factor in the game. That would be amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can remember when I was living in New York in the, in the late 90s and it was the only way to watch the FA Cup final was to go to a play like a, a establishment that had it and was yeah. paying a lot for it. I remember doing that. And it did feel like a huge occasion. Yeah. And it was fun. And, and it's just the fact that it is easier to see now is a good thing. Uh, even if you have to go behind the paywall with ESPN plus, I, I think that's worth the money based on what they have. Um, like, the FA Cup as a tournament has sort of declined in popularity since the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how do you go about trying to, to keep it a big deal? And I think in England, the Knockout Cup tournament, they've at least done more than in other European countries right. with theirs. And so you have, you know, match days on the weekend and you have... Uh, you know, a, a pretty big run up to, to this final, but, uh, but we'll see, you know, it's, yeah, it, uh, it's always enjoyable. Grant, I remember watching, you know, in some of those bars, it was like being at a live, uh, a live game. So look, Hey, we appreciate you talking to us, Grant. The, uh, we look forward to this, this docu-series that you're doing on Freddie Adu and also your, your podcast, which is great. Uh, football with Grant Wall. Grant Wall, thanks so much for joining us on OTB. Thanks guys. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. All right, guys, always great to talk to Grant. I, you know, plus, by the way, uh, in the introduction, I said, he, I said he worked for Fox News. Oh uh, big God. difference, big difference. He works like for he Fox Sports. Grabbing so. a sandwich with Janine Pirro at lunch yeah. or something? Or good yeah, well, Lord. he might have done that because he was over at Fox, oh, but he was at Fox. Please, let's hope again. Not.
Again, Grant Wall at Fox Sports. And, you know, yes. guys, I tell you, uh, the beginning of that interview, I'm really interested to see this uh, or hear this Freddie Adu special. Um, really interesting. I can't wait. I mean, you know, I remember seeing a Freddie Adu profile on 60. I mean, I remember Grant's story in SI, obviously, because I was there at the time. Right. But the 60 Minutes did a story on Freddie Adu. And I can't remember who, was, who, who did the interview, but, uh, you know, it was like Freddie juggling a ball, and then Freddie yeah. doing the Pele commercial and all that. And again, it's just like, sometimes I just feel like the, the media puts such undue pressure on people just wanting, the media wants people to be the next best thing. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it's just so much, it's so much pressure on these young kids. You know, and, and the thing is, he's a nice kid or a nice man, yeah. uh, really. And the thing is, a lot of times these prodigies explode because they get the money, they go crazy, they do, you know, they have drug problems or behavioral problems. And so they, they kind of shoot themselves in the foot. He didn't do that. Uh, it just didn't seem like it, it added up. You know, I remember when I was working the Cosmos soccer camp, Pele would show up and there was a Pele prodigy. They had taken him out of Africa, this, this uh, young guy. Skill beyond belief, tricks unbelievable. Could not play his way out of a paper bag. Uh, but he would do these amazing tricks and you put him on a field and it just, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't do anything. And I said, Oh my, this poor kid, the pressure he was under. Look, um, how many guys have we played over our careers that were highly skilled who just did, who were, who weren't smart players or no vision, right? They just didn't know what to do. They could dribble better than anybody, but they never went anywhere. I think Freddie just suffered from probably not being really mentored at a young age and having somebody take him under his wing and he was just kind of thrown into the cauldron. And when it didn't happen immediately, people just like let him go. It was just like, see ya. Yeah. But what stuck with me was his description and yours too, Kevin, of how good he was at that U 20 world cup. And then how he always struggled when he would play with his clubs. And club um, I feel like we have a real problem with that in this country where we're, yeah. we're often really good at that level. And then when guys go to play wherever they play next, they don't, you know, we don't keep it up. Um, yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, also the college game, you know, cause guys, I, I'm sure we've all seen this, you know, if you're playing with guys your own age and everyone's kind of in a similar deal, um, that's one game. And then you go play all of a sudden with people who are 10 years older than you. Right. Uh, potentially that's just a totally different game but uh, you know yeah I, I think you're right but it's also environment and whether you know they say like go to a college if the coach wants you we had billy gazonas on he was saying how the coach didn't want him and then you got to kind of play your way into being um relevant i think you look at coutinho you know he's a, a dominant player for liverpool he goes to another club goes to barcelona doesn't play well what happens is it's a different environment different expectations. He was in the front pages, you know, he got big money. It changes even with these great players. So I think. Yeah. uh, Yeah, And the whole club and country thing is interesting because in Europe, it's usually the inverse. You have players that are dominant club players who, when they go to play for their country, just wilt. There are so many players in England who played, you know, John Barnes being one who was an amazing striker for Liverpool. And he would play for England. It was like he didn't even resemble the same player. He right. just sometimes the pressure is just too much. And in, in Freddie Adu's case, it was kind of the inverse. Like he could show up on the international stage, but he could never make it happen with uh, the team. I saw him in Toronto. We, Grant, uh, Grant mentioned the, the games uh, that we were. I was up there for you know a couple of weeks in the summer, and he magged an Argentinian player on the touchline. Uh, just he. 
I think he might have done it twice. Twice. <laughs> he, went guy, back, I, he went back for more. He got one and he got the second one. No, I think it was oh, a double okay. meg up in the right hand corner oh, that he, and he, he was taking it, uh, you know, basically on the touchline. Just amazing. And everybody looked at each other like it was a flash of brilliance. I actually think he also rainbowed a player out of the corner. Um, you know, who's he was about to get done, and then he rainbowed and jumped. And I was like, yeah. "Wow, this kid's gonna have a hell of a career." Um, so, uh, so anyway, uh, he would have had a fun time in college. And speaking of college soccer, uh, looks like it's looks like it's not gonna happen. Are people just just delaying the inevitable? I mentioned it to Grant. You know, in the interview there, it's like uh, everybody's trying to figure out how they can play football, bat, you know, and soccer in the fall. It's just not gonna happen. I don't think. Well, so you got 40 of the 44 D3 conferences are now have canceled for the fall. Um, Sam, you might be more on top of D1 and D2, but obviously there are a lot of teams that have canceled there or they're just playing conference only games. I think the ACC, I think I just read, was talking about doing like a six game schedule that was only in conference games to just try to do something. Yeah, I haven't heard of any major D1 cancellations, but uh, certain ideas like that are are floating around for sure. So, uh, and the coaches convention, uh, I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know how I'm going to catch up with all my college buddies. This will will be the coaches convention right here. What we're doing right now will be the coaches convention. We'll have to have Ian Barker on again to talk about that a little bit, but that seems like a very smart move, you know, yeah, it's inevitable. It's in January. Coaches, I think, yeah. or something attended. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... it would just be a nightmare. So I, I think that's very smart, very prudent on their part to uh, to sort of you know cut your losses, plan for what the the eventuality is going to be. Um, so then the I mean, NWL, be, yeah, just quickly, uh, Grail, yeah, yeah, we just, have a lot I'm to sorry, get to. Just, just back to the college thing quickly. I think it's going to be you know, the, it's going to be really interesting for the student athletes because do you decide to take a full year off? Do you, you know, because you're paying a lot of money and you're, if you're a soccer player and you're missing the benefit of all of that, I would decide to take the full year, you know, essentially not burn up any eligibility and come back, come back, you know, I guess that would be fall of 2021. I mean, right. That's one of the reasons I didn't go to Harvard other than the fact that I I wasn't accepted. (laughs) Um, Hey, uh, Grail, I th- something came under your wheelhouse there. The NWSL, their their championship, they had some pretty good numbers, huh? Yeah. So they their final match, the De- Houston Dash defeated the Chicago Red Stars two nil, and uh, the it was the highest. It was actually uh, the highest rating game of the whole tourney, which I guess you wouldn't think is that surprising, except the first the first game, the opening game, did a really good rating. So in any case, I think you know they're thinking it was a really good success. You know, I've made my opinions known about the broad actual broadcast itself, which I think it needs a lot of work, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I look, it went up again. My measurement is does the tournament basically run its course and do they get out of there without a lot of positive tests? And right. by that measure, it all worked great because they were kind of in their own bubble in Utah and uh, so, yeah, it'll be interesting if they can. And uh, many, many would argue that Utah is a bubble anyway to begin with. So. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the only downside was that 16 of the 22, 16 of 22 matches finished either one nil or nil all, which is not yeah. what you really want to be uh, promoting the game of soccer. But, you know, again, like I said, after their, you know, the Women's Big World Cup win and they tried to have the momentum to go through, uh, if you want to f- 
you know, have, you have to have eyes watching the games domestically, yeah. that league. So this, it's good that there were some people watching because then that gives you power because that's money and that's everything else. So, uh, Sam, what do you got for us? Do you have a quiz for us this week? I didn't yeah, check in with you on this. I got a quiz and I also got a little stats, to, a few stats to throw at you guys. Um, so good, last week we had this, the – This is the time of the, the show I like to just, you know, just really have my intellectual heft <laughs> – just well, dominate you, grail i thought you just put us on mute and went and went and made coffee or something then. no i google the answer really quick <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so i'm kicking your butt every week so so we had the entertainment index that i came up with last week um this week i'm yeah. looking essentially at you know which teams have gotten the most value for spending this season across europe who want to pick a team in each league that i think had the best year given their spending power and how they finished so i I love this you know sam i i envision you in a laboratory with like smoking and big charts and graphs up on the wall it's it's far more rudimentary than that i'm sure someone who actually knew how to do statistics so spending little so sam spending little but succeeding uh, to a great degree so here i'll I'll run through it so um, you know, to calculate this, I looked at the team's overall market value, which you can find on transfer market. So that's the amount their roster is worth in dollars. Yeah. Okay. And I coupled that with the average annual salary these teams paid their players. And that I got from this global sports salary survey, which is published by Sporting Intelligence. So I figured these were good because, um, you know, it's hard to track transfer spending because it can vary so much year by year. You can spend right. $100 million one year and zero the next year. Um, and this way, you know, the salaries can sort of offset a very high market value. If you're paying your players a little bit less, maybe that means you developed more of your own players, didn't spend as much for them. So that's my rationale. It's not perfect by any means. Um, and so I've compared basically these teams spending power to how they finished. Um, okay. And it's obviously, again, not perfect because the by far two most inefficient teams in terms of how much they spent per point are Real Madrid and Barcelona, who also finished number one and number two in their league. Um, But uh, there are some takeaways that I do feel are worth mentioning. So I'll start with England. um, And overwhelmingly, the uh, most successful team this year was Sheffield United. That makes sense. In ninth place, um, despite paying by my metric, the least per point in the league. Um, It should be noted, however, that Liverpool spent um, only the fourth most per point in the league behind Man City, Man United and Chelsea. And they were the only club in the top four leagues to win their league without having the highest spending power. So I do. So think would, Man, would, would Man United have been one of the least efficient teams? Would be uh, my guess. They spent a lot in, even though they ended up well, where they did. Yeah, Man a, City. A dead would, wood too. Man City were yeah. the least efficient because they okay. spent so much. But yes, Man United were also not very good. Yeah, and um, Chelsea probably too, to be yes. honest with you, because they yes. spent a lot of money. Yeah. Plus, because he just said that, Graham. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I just like to say Chelsea again. You just like to try and sound smart. Is what you're trying to do. You're repeating what Sam just said. So As Sam said um, in Spain, Granada was the most impressive team. They finished in sixth place despite paying the least per point in the league um, per my metric. Uh, I mentioned Real Madrid and Barcelona being very inefficient, but finishing at the top of the league. Um, in Germany, Union Berlin finished in 11th, spent the second least uh, per point in the league. Um, mm. And a lot of people think, you know, Atalanta are kind of the major success story in Italy, but I actually think Verona is the most efficient run team. Uh, they're currently in ninth place and spending the second least per point in the league. And we're really, 
they had the highest percentage chance of getting relegated at the beginning of the season uh, and have managed to finish in the top half. Almost. That's, that's, that's a huge, that's gotta be a huge factor when you're looking at coaches, when you're looking at general managers, when you're looking, you know, with, with effective transfers. I mean, that's, that's a, uh, well, I like that We, we got to rename this and send it over to them. Especially if you're a middle of the table club, right? I yeah. mean, it, it's all about yeah. that balancing act of, what you're getting from gate receipts, what are you playing for players? And yeah, I mean, Sheffield clearly got Sheffield United clearly got the economics. Yeah. So Burnley, Burnley also scored pretty well in the premier yeah. league. Um, Everton had a pretty down year. Um, yeah. They finished in the 12th place and they spent a yeah. lot of money. So uh, they, they underachieved, I guess. So anyway, I could go through all these, but those, those that's are the cool. major takeaways. That's, that's interesting though, but that's, that's an important uh, sort of metric that you have there because, uh, you know, it, when you're talking about promotion relegation as well, you're talking about Champions League, you have to figure out what's working, what's not. And yeah. I think a lot of these teams get caught with dead wood too. They're trying to offload players and things. I mean, the thing, the thing that's tough, what skews it is like, you know, you can say, okay, Real Madrid were very inefficient, but they also still won the league. And so, that's right. all they care about ultimately. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, they have such deep pockets that they're like, you know, whatever it takes. All right, so, so those, those are more stats. Yeah, that leads us into the quiz. So looking through all these salaries and numbers and everything. Um, yeah, yeah, okay, so question number one. The NBA has the highest median salary of any league at $4 million, which mm-hmm. is perhaps not that surprising because the rosters are you know, relatively small. Small, yeah. sports. Uh, So question number one, what league uh, comes second behind the NBA? MLB. Globally? Global. Um, I'd say MLB. That's my answer. Are we? Okay. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Premier League. Okay. Uh, You're both wrong, and I would have been too, but it's actually the India Premier League. Cricket League with a oh. median salary of $3.77 <laughs> million. Dollars. Oh, my never, God. I never I came, th- I came this close to oh, being signed by yeah. the Mumbai Chargers. I was going with the Samoan Cricket uh, <laughs> Association. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. I'll just look through the median salaries by Soccer League. Uh, the, the Premier League has by far the highest at $2.925 million. Followed by Serie A at 1.3 million, then Bundesliga at 1.12 million, and finally La Liga at 983k. You know who's the underpaid league? I believe is the NFL because those guys beat themselves up pretty badly. Yeah, and uh, well, they, they have short, very short window. They have like yeah. a three to four year, and the rosters I mean, are so huge. They got they're a, so big, and that's that's around. a problem. I think that's why they get hurt. The more quarterbacks too. are the quarterbacks are making most of the money, frankly. Yeah. Um, okay, final final question. Um, so I was looking at just the highest paid players in all of these leagues um, on the website Capology. Didn't want to pay the membership fee, so I only could see number one in each league. But <laughs> that's all I really cared about. Um, so these numbers are all gross. Um, yeah, in more ways than one. But um, uh, Leo Messi makes ninety six point <laughs> one million dollars in salary every year. Uh, Ronaldo oh makes sixty seven point nine million. Um, okay. And in France, Neymar makes forty three point. So, so straight salary, uh, gross. Or, or, yeah, so gross, gross. yearly salary. So you got to, you know, the taxes are pretty high in these. But that's too, without so. endorsements. Yes. Okay. So I'm wondering if you guys can tell me who the highest paid player in the Premier League is. Okay. Um, wow. 
Uh... Oh, um, I'm going to go with Van. I'm going to go with Van Dyke. Okay. Wow, I uh, it's got to be a striker. No, but I can't think. They're all on Liverpool. Um, Van Dyke had the, that was the biggest defender transfer fee. Yeah, that was a transfer mm -hmm. fee. I don't know if it translates into actual it's a, it's salary, money. but. Um, son, I, I stop, stop going on to Google. Stop it. Yeah, really. You're watching me. You can see me. <laughs> I know. I am watching you. Be careful. Uh, Sadio Mane. Okay. It's actually David De Gea at $23.07 million. Well, that was his recent contract, right? Because they That's just a... re-signed him about a year hey, ago. He's not playing that well for that no, money, he's... man. You got to be kidding me. He's going to be like Freddie Adu, embarrassed walking around the locker room. <laughs> Uh, and then finally, can you tell me the highest paid pair in Germany? In Germany, uh, it's not Lewandowski. Uh, well, you're asking. Yeah. Are you? T I'm, I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with uh, maybe because he's been around a while, and we you went with a keeper. I'm going to go with Neuer. Okay, it's actually uh, Muller. Philippe Coutinho at twenty-seven point three. Oh, God, is that an oh. overpay? So uh, what's interesting to me is that the EPL has the highest median salary, but the mm -hmm. lowest highest paid player of the top five leagues. Uh, yeah, that is interesting. Highest paid player. Yeah. Well, so so that could, uh, Sam, that Coutinho contract was basically the Barca contract, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. They took, yeah. they took yeah. that. God, he's made a lot of money for. He sure has. Yeah. Oh, right, good stuff, man. Yeah. That's good. That's enough. I like that. Uh, I didn't bury Grail as I usually do each week. <laughs> um, but uh, guys, what games are you going to watch this weekend? Uh, Arsenal, the, Chelsea, FA Cup. Uh, and the, yeah, the yeah. relegation battles that I mentioned earlier in Serie A will be my pick. Who's that? Is Genoa? And that was uh, yeah, Genoa Lice and Parma? against Verona and then Lecce Parma. Yeah. I knew. See, that's, a, that's an interesting, well thought out answer. As opposed to yours, Grail, which we knew. Sam and I both knew what you were going <laughs> for. He, you see, Sam, he couldn't even control <laughs> himself. He just like, he jumped out of his seat. I'm, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Tourette's. What can I say? All right. Well, that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, remember to like us on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. It really helps uh, the Apple Podcasts and stuff. It helps with our numbers. We appreciate it. Uh, for Grant Wall, we'd like to thank Grant for being on. Uh, looking forward to his new Freddie Adu special coming up and also his football with Grant Wall. For Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time on Over the Ball.